What do you call that noise? What do you call that noise? Not that long ago, it wasn't certain the original tapes for the Big Express would ever be found. That was before a professional search had been undertaken, after which, very happily, they were discovered. Even more happily, Stephen Wilson has returned to XTC's 1984 masterpiece and given it not only a stunning 5.1 surround remix, but also for the first time with XTC, a Dolby Atmos mix. Hello, I'm Mark Fisher, and this is What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast. And this month, to whet your appetite for the remixed album, which is released on the 29th of September 2023, I'll be talking to several fans who have enjoyed a sneak peek of what's in store. And they're very excited about what they've heard. Before that, let's have our regular feature in which you, the listeners, entertain us with your XTC-inspired songs. Since the start of the year, we've heard lots of wonderful songs, and this month it's the turn of Nigel Collier, who is here to introduce Behind the Blinds. What do you call that noise? Hi, Mark. It's Nigel Collier from West Sussex. I create music for fun and in the hope that people will one day discover it and enjoy it. So regarding your request to fans to serve up an XTC-inspired tune, I'd like to offer you one of mine. In 2017, I released an online album which includes a song called Behind the Blinds. The challenge I set myself at the time was to try and create a song that sounded as if it had been recorded in the UK around 1978 to 79, and most importantly, it was to contain elements of Squeeze, Elvis Costello and XTC, all literally thrown into the musical blender together. So these bands were favourites of mine, And naturally, XTC remains the overall favourite to this day. So friends tell me I've captured in part the essence, energy and style of that era. So if you believe that, you'll believe anything. But perhaps your listeners will enjoy it too. The song is from the album All of the Above. It's track nine and can be listened to free on my Bandcamp page. So thanks for all your hard work, Mark, in keeping the flag flying on the XTC boat, the boat that we hope will never, ever go down. Bye-bye. Oh, Emily, don't be hesitant. He's just a neighbour looking over your fence, trying to be a good resident. But the way you ignore him don't make any sense. Yeah. 
the lights go down at her place She is turning up the place Behind the blinds it's too late Thanks a lot, Nigel. If you like the sound of that, you can hear Nigel's album All of the Above on Bandcamp at the link I'll include in the podcast details. And you can also find him at nigelcollier.com and Collier spelt C-O-L-L-Y-E-R. And if you're a musician and you've written something inspired by XDC in some way, I'd love to hear from you. If you've got something that fits the bill, please get in touch with me at mark at xdclimelight.com. This podcast is brought to you by all the brilliant supporters on Patreon whose donations keep me going financially and spiritually. They are a fantastic bunch of XDC fans. And if you would like to be one of them, well, it's very easy. You just go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher and decide your level of support. If you opt to be a knight in shining karma, I'll read out your name at the end of each episode. And one last reminder, you can buy your copy of What Do You Call That Noise? An XDC Discovery Book at xdclimelight.com, where you'll also find details of all the XDC podcasts. What do you call that noise? So let's get on with the conversation. And this is a particularly exciting conversation to have because we in this group of people have heard the Big Express in advance of the rest of the world. So people are very uh, privileged to have done that. Uh, One of those people I'll say hello to first is John Jacks. Hello, John. How are you doing? Not too bad, Mark. Um, Very well. Lovely to join you on XTC Limelight. What a treat. Yep, it's great to have you on. And the reason uh, John is is a guest is because he was... Uh, privileged to get one of, I think, only about 40 tickets to see, to not see is the wrong word, isn't it? Um, hear the pitch black premiere of the Big Express in spatial audio uh, in London in April 2023. And that was an event that was then repeated in Los Angeles. Uh, and so we'll be hearing from John about that. Uh, but before we do, um, I, I've got to big up this podcast because in September 2021, 
our guest on What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, was Stephen Wilson talking about various 5.1 remixes that he's done. So it was Drums and Wires, Black Sea, Skylarking, Oranges and Lemons and Nonsuch and, and the Dukes of Stratosphere. And the guests on that program were Mark Reed and Mark Smutroff. And as that means that once again, we have three Marks in this conversation, we're probably going to be going for surnames rather than first names for the, <laughs> for the rest of the episode. Then in December 2022, I got what I think you will agree listening at home is the most remarkable email that you could possibly get from Stephen Wilson himself. And he said to me, when we did the podcast for you, there are a couple of surround stroke 5.1 sound guys also in the discussion. I wonder if they would be able to check over the latest XTC 5.1 mix for their thoughts, which kind of sounds like the sort of thing that would happen in a Beano comic or, a, you know, where, you know, the luckiest guy in the world suddenly gets a call from Paul McCartney and saying, hey, do you want to be on my new album or something? And so naturally, it took an awful lot of uh, persuading to get um, Reed and Smotroff, as I'm going to call them now, like some sort of dodgy lawyers <laughs> um, to, to to contribute uh, to, to this. So, so. The two Marks, both of whom have got 5.1 systems, got the opportunity not only to hear the final mixes that are about to be released of the Big Express, but um, Stephen Wilson's pretty complete but but not quite finished remixes before he played them to Andy Partridge. So um, we'll be finding out about that. And I think what I'm just going to do is let... Uh, initially the two marks but john feel free to join in uh take away the conversation so so let's go to los angeles and say hello to smutroff how are you doing smutroff <laughs> well i'm in san francisco <laughs> oh san francisco sorry <laughs> it's okay it's okay but it is california and uh, greetings to everybody and thank you for having us on here this is great um yeah it was that email was a bit of a jaw dropper <laughs> And uh, it was an exciting, definitely an exciting moment. Um, I'm thrilled with this, this, these remixes, both the surround sound and the uh, the stereo, because you know, as we as we know, you know, uh, the the big express is sort of gets overlooked a lot, and some, many people seem to have trouble with it being whatever in the drum machine, or people can make, make funny comments on it. But I've always thought the mix was a little bit dense, and that the music needed to open up a bit and i think stephen wilson has done that quite brilliantly um both in the stereo and the surround mix and uh i'm just loving it i just listened to it again last night and i said wow this is just so open <laughs> and it's, it's so open and rich and i was also taken with how warm it sounded because that's one of the things that a lot of people i've heard complain about the big express that it's so bright and uh and it's still bright, but it's it sounds richer now somehow. What do you think, Mark Reed? Yeah, hello. I'm not in San Francisco. I'm in Edinburgh, sunny Pilton, which is miserable and overcast and dark. Yeah, I mean, we got the mail from you on the 19th of December, less than a week before Christmas. So, you know, basically Santa had a really busy job to try and top that a week later um, as, a, as a Christmas present. But yeah, it, it was also... Um, very intense because um, Stephen, as we call him now, because he's our good friend, wanted the responses by New Year. So we had to get them back to him by, I think, the 1st of January it was, or the 2nd, something like that. I've got yeah. mail from a band for the 1st. And so it was very intense. And as you say, over that period, I mean, I think I tried to do the not be too keen. So I waited about half an hour before I responded to his mail saying, yes, that's fine. Um, <laughs> and then 
he sent over a zip file with the files and <laughs> at the risk of getting very technical i've got the same player that smotchkov has got so it's just a case of copying it onto a, a usb drive and sticking it in and bob's your uncle so it was a case of listening to that feeding back which was what well, i'm sure we'll come on to in a bit because it was just a very difficult thing to do you know it's like i'm some schmuck who works in it and lives in a flat in edinburgh and you've got stephen wilson saying what do you think of these mixers can you tell me um, what you think and you've got to send him something back and then a few days later he'd send you another zip file with some changes that he'd made and it was all very exciting a lot of pressure to be honest because you wanted to say something intelligent and um, but certainly as uh, Smotrov said there they were pretty much fine as the world when we first got them so you know there wasn't that much tweaking required um, it didn't stop us making lots of comments and lots of suggestions but as they were in terms of the album itself it was interesting because I think if you look at the Wikipedia page for Big Express, which obviously everybody who loves XTC does, the thing that comes over again and again is, the, as Mark Smotra said, is the density of it. The fact, and I also had the impression with this album that two channels wasn't enough. Stereo was just far too limiting for all the stuff that was going on on the record. And I think the big thing with the surround sound is that there was literally more channels to play with. So when you've got an album that dense with so much going on and you're limited to just two channels for stereo, it doesn't really sell itself as well as it can. Once you've got the extra channels of surround, then obviously there's a whole lot of things you can do. And as Mark said, Smotrov, it opens up a lot more. Even one of the quotes on Wikipedia is Dave Gregory saying that um, he heard Small Town decades later and said, damn, this needs mixing. He says there's lots of musical and verbal detail in the track, though much of it is buried and blurred, creating a flat, undynamic listening experience, which is exactly what Surround is designed to remedy. You know, it, it, it takes that flatness and turns it into something 3D. It adds the dynamics. There's just a 360-degree field to play with. So... Uh, yeah, so hi, I'm in Edinburgh and I'm in Pilton. That's my introduction done. <laughs> <laughs> Very well, good. One, one, of the th- one of the things I was thinking about also, though, you know, in, in defense of what they did at the time, and given the circumstances, probably as good as it was going to be, it was the 80s, it was 1984, and everything was going gated snare drums and big, you know, loud, 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 quiet kinds of contrasts and things like that. And it was it was a new... There was a new sound being developed, so I have a feeling that the Big Express kind of got caught in the crossfire of some of that, as many releases did uh, for a, num- a number of artists. Elvis Costello, some of his <laughs> early 80s albums were questionable at times in terms of what they did with them, you know. Get- getting the opportunity to offer some suggestions was really quite uh, an honor, and I I, I can't remember what uh, Mark sent over, Mark Reed sent over, but I was just looking at my notes and going, wow, I was pretty direct with a lot of details and things I suggested. <laughs> oh, you were. <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let's not use the word sea shanties just yet, shall we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, and, I, and I was very careful to, I threw out some crazy ideas, but I, pre- I positioned them as crazy ideas. And I, I don't think he took them up on those. Uh, but anyway, they were, uh, you know, but it was just having some fun, just putting myself in the producer's seat. Okay, you know, what if I could do this? You know, what could we say? What could we do? And I was also trying to think about if this was my recording from like with my old band, what would I have done with these things? What would I have liked to have heard? What would be appropriate for the music? And then also thinking about what the record sounded like. Some things sounded like there were, were there things missing with the things that should have been brought up? Those kinds of details were 
were. It felt great to be an honor, again, an honor to be able to be sharing that perspective. It's, so. it's an interesting point because my responses were more tweaking and Mark's Smotrovs were also covering a lot of the same ground. In fact, I think basically, I think Mark Smotrov sent his responses before me and I base my reply was pretty much, yeah, what Mark Smotrov said, you know, plus this. Um, so I think there was pretty much general agreement. And also it's worth saying that David White um, of this parish, I invited him around as a, as a extra body to so that I wasn't going mad. So a lot of my suggestions include the suggestions that David White had made, so we should call him out as well. It, it was an interesting thing because as I say, mine were tweaking, so were Mark Smotrov's. But I think Mark Smotrov, you kind of, as you were saying, kind of put yourself in the producer's chair and made suggestions about the sort of record you would have liked to have heard. And it got to the point where uh, Stephen, as we, as we call our friend now, wrote back to us. And stepping aside, I think it's worth reading this out simply because um, it positions what he does when he does these mixes. So he's saying, one thing probably worth pointing out is that I stop short of adding new production ideas, stroke gags in my remixes. That way lies revisionism. So it's really a question of honouring the original mixes as closely as possible, but finding extra clarity and better balance as tones wherever possible. I'm sure he would love to get in there and do some tweaking, and probably with the Dukes of Stratosphere stuff, he probably did a bit more of that. However, his self-imposed remit is to just make what's there sound better. So I think in this case, it was just using that extra space to make things. And a lot of really what we were feeding back were things like bring the drums up, um, yes. bring the synth up, bring the guitar down, that sort of thing. I don't know what, yes. you, what you think, Smotrov. Oh, I know. I t totally agree with that. And uh, that point you make about Stephen's uh, modus operandi, if you will, uh, is really important because that's the key to his whole success as far as I've seen. You know, the fact that he's gained the trust of all these artists and basically, if I feel pardon the Star Trek cliche, you know, getting to go places where no, very few producers have gotten to go. I mean, when you stop and think about it, there were a lot of great surround sound producers out there before Steven, but all these, all the prog folks, all the people that, you know, were holding back or, or might have been uh, misled or whatever, or were not happy with what happened with their music, all went to Stephen because of this approach, you know. Uh, and you can, I can cite specific examples of of other artists in the past who you know did things when you and when you go back and listen to them, it's like, oh yeah, they did add. Uh, it takes some creative liberties here, adding all this reverb and changing the the, the the basic feel of the of the recording and whatnot, you know. And sometimes it's done with the artist's intent. Um, you know, the Grateful Dead got a lot of guff when they put out their surround mixes of a couple of their classic albums, but those were intentional. They they wanted to do something different. They had put in the full unedited mixes. They did different things with the surround mix, and some people were freaking out going, oh, it doesn't sound like the original album. Well, that's the point with that one. <laughs> but with this, you know, with, but to, Steve, to Stephen's point, though, he's, you know, trying to do honor to what they were originally trying to create in the studio. So I think that's a really good point, Mark Reed, there. So. The other thing that was a lot of pressure was that Stephen said from the start, the reason for the short uh, timescale that we had to respond back to him was because he is he had Andy coming around to listen to it and sign it off. So it was, if it wasn't enough pressure, you know, trying to please Stephen Wilson, you then had the knowledge that this the result was going to go to Andy's ears. And I, I, I mailed Stephen at the end of February and said, just out of curiosity, what did Andy think? And he came back and said, Andy indeed loves them. 
And then he says, you know, thanks for the feedback on the mixes. They went through a few revisions to reach, quotes perfection, unquote. So I think what we were seeing was kind of like an agile sprint. He was just kind of giving us drops. I think there were several mixes in between the ones that he sent us, and I'm sure the ones after that. There's also the nature of what he was recording. I mean, you tapped into this. This is probably where, where John can talk to us about. Um, my setup is a 5.1 setup. It's probably an intermediate one. It's far from being top range. It still costs a heck of a lot of money. And it does still sound fantastic, but it's a 5.1. So, you know, even though it's got all the extra space, it's nothing like the full Atmos one. And so I think that's, I don't know, Mark Smotroff, if you've got a full Atmos or whether you've just got a 5.1. Last year, I got to upgrade my system. So I am actually doing Atmos now. But again, it's a, it's a modest system. I kind of can champion myself as sort of the everyman audiophile. <laughs> and, so, and then the notion is, is that when, I'm, when I have friends over and whatnot, I want them to, and they hear this, say, oh, this must have cost a million dollars, this system. It's like, no, not quite. No, you can do this in your home. My system is good, you know, and I got, uh, fortunately, one of my... Uh, my colleagues in the journalism world was able to get me a uh, a nice Yamaha amp that uh, he did he had reviewed and they let me let me use it. <laughs> so now I'm set up for Atmos. It's, it's possibly worth explaining at this point to folk listening who are going, "What the hell are these idiots talking about? What what we mean by yes. things like five point one and Atmos?" Um, so yes. I'll, I'll do five point one and you can do Atmos. <laughs> okay. So five point one basically. Um, it talks about the number of speakers involved. So the point one is the bass speaker, which can go anywhere in a room, and it's a huge speaker, and that purely handles the bass. Um, there's a certain frequency cutoff point at which the other speakers take on, but for the sake of this argument, that, that one speaker does all the bass. The five are the other speakers, the satellites, and that's made up of one central one that's positioned right in front of you. One left and right of the centre one, so that's front left and front right. So you've then got a field of a centre speaker in front of you, one to the left of that and one to the right of that. And then the other two that make up the five are behind you to the left and to the right. I'll pass over at this point to Mark Smotrov because at that point you start adding in extra speakers. Right. Well, Atmos, and well, there has been there have been growth points in, the, in before Atmos because there was you know people were doing seven point one, nine point one, hooking up multiple subwoofers and things like that. And the so the reason that the subwoofer can go in the corner somewhere is because below a certain frequency range, your your ear can't really discern where the bass frequencies are coming out. So usually, you kind of tuck it away in a corner somewhere. Um, and because it's also a big ugly unit <laughs> usually. Um, but Atmos is a really interesting thing because they're dealing with height and more spatial uh, uh, attributes of the room. You know, with any of these things, some of the original intentions of it were to try and you know bring you into the space of the musicians. And now there's been lots of different mixed approaches um, these days. Most people, most producers, tend to uh, focus on trying to keep the basic premise of the band or artist front and center but using the surround fields for uh you know supplemental information additional guitars room ambience things like that things like that with atmos you can now have height however so so for example um and the mixes that have been coming out have been really interesting because they're again they're stephen wilson's uh, some of his atmos mixes have been very interesting because he's putting discrete information into some of those channels that are peppering up above us 
one of the most fascinating uh, Atmos mixes I've heard recently I got to review was the recent mix of the Frank Zappa's Grand Wazoo and Waka Jawaka albums, which have been put into Surround Sound and Atmos. And they did a really nice job creating a sense of height. So like if you're at a at a club and you're you know hearing a band play and the drums are behind you and the drums hit on the top of the you know this 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 crash or whatever there's a sense of height that's happening there that you may not may not be aware of and it was very clear to me when i was listening to these recordings that wow i'm really getting a sense of the height of the de- of the drum kit here and musicians in the space and that was a really exciting moment to hear because again there've been some surround mix some many surround mixes and even some of the early atmos mixes that have been somewhat disappointing to me because they've just been kind of putting a lot of you know room ambience they've taken the easy way out and just kind of put reverb in the in the in the in those channels and it doesn't do a whole lot for me but i think we're just on the cusp of hearing new creative approaches to what people can do with atmos uh so i'm excited about that so there's an awful lot that uh, that's starting to come out in in the uk through um, a label called super deluxe edition um that oh, are yeah. putting out like one or two a month and they're all yes. atmos the the majority actually are stephen wilson produced but the the things that are i find just the the most enjoyable and most immersive are albums where it's just so, there was so much richness in the original recording that you can give the space um, I'm going to use the most recent example uh, of ABC's The Next Signal of Love. It's just a, a lush album in anybody's book, but the depth and the and the kind of the movement and the textures and you know, there's all there. You can hear it, but it just gives it so much more space and it makes it a, you know a genuinely blissful experience. One that you know you you really want to savor, and it's it, I think it's those qualities. Um, the the other bit I would just add about the conversation about Dolby Atmos at home um, is, you know, for me, it became like my lockdown passion. I was kind of I was denied immersion in music. I couldn't go and see live bands, all of that stuff. And um, I kind of literally cobbled together old speaker systems that I could find in the loft. I like hammered eBay for like the upfiring Dolby Atmos speakers. You can find them really quite cost effectively. They're not thousands and thousands of pounds. Um, but it, it, it just adds this whole other quality. And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say it kept me sane because I'll start twitching in a minute, of course. <laughs> but, um, but like it, 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 kept, it kept me going definitely during the lockdown, lockdown period. Um, the, th- the thing when we, when we get to start talking about um, the L acoustic setup uh, in Highgate and Los Angeles, that is on a quantum other level. You know, this is like the Death Star in comparison to my my land speeder, frankly. But it's but that the idea is the same, you know, and and the quality and the depth and the um like Stephen Wilson is, you know, I mean he he honors the music, but he brings it till he gives it the space and he gives it the color. And the, I, I love the term you used, uh, Mark Smotroff. I think brightness, you know, and warmth and but just like an album that you know just didn't like breathe in the way that it should have done um both in i'm sure in the 5.1 but in particular in the dolby atmos context and the sound stage the space that it had was just like um it transformed my attitude to that album it absolutely transformed my attitude to it um not all of the mixes i hear do that but this one did totally the lexicon of love one is a good example where the first two times i played that um on my 5.1 surround sound I didn't like it 
because I was thinking, I, I don't remember this. I mean, my, my very first hearing of it was on an old cassette, and so I was so used to hearing it in stereo. But then it was simply because I was hearing things that I hadn't heard before in places. And once my ears adapted to that, I absolutely blinked loved it. You know, and now I can't go back and hear the stereo one now because I'm so used to hearing the surround version. And it, But it's not simply a case of... Um, doing things for the sake of using surround sound, it is that thing of just highlighting things that you didn't quite catch before. And it really is, I mean, I hate to use the, revelation, the word revelation, but it is, because in terms, if, especially if you know an album inside out, to then hear a, a good surround mix of it, you do hear it as though, not for the first time, but as I say, the first one or two times you're going, this isn't what I'm used to, this is, this is a tough mix. And then you realize it's just your cloth ears are so used to the other version that you're not really making room for it. And then once you do, you fall literally head over heels and for it, you know, definitely is the look of love. And at that point, I'll slap myself in the face. <laughs> <laughs> but also, if I can just chip in as the as the old guard, because I, I haven't heard the either the Atmos or the 5.1, but I have heard the, you know, the stereo remix. And even that, as has, has been the case with the previous Stephen Wilson XTC remixes, uh, that has the quality, a lot of the qualities that you're saying, it has a, a space. It, 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 things aren't competing in the same way. I'm, I'm hearing bass lines and 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 uh, you know guitar parts and stuff that had previously sort of all been part of the uh, uh, an album I love, but you know, <laughs> sort of uh, I don't want to use the word mush, but they, it, it, things weren't as distinct, and now everything's got its own space, even on the even on a stereo mix. I've, I've found. I remember someone saying that when they did a surround sound, the first thing they did was they got the master tapes, they set it up, they kind of then um, mixed it as to be as close to the original as possible. And that was then their baseline. And then they said, right, that's how the record sounds. Where can I take it from there? And I think it ties in with the thing that Stephen Wilson was quoted earlier, where it's you're not looking to do something new. Is You're actually pushing aside all the things you can do and just trying to get it to sound how everybody's used to it sounding, and then say, right, how can I make this slightly better? You know, and then from there, that's where the magic happens. John very kindly sent me a transcript of an interview or a recording that Andy Partridge did that I think was played at the start of the uh, uh, the thing. And I'll just quote one line from it just to give you an idea of how impressed Andy was. Andy Partridge said, um, if if my head was a pedal bin, the top of it would be permanently flapped back on hearing that mix of it. <laughs> So he also said, I love surprises and I love detail. And certainly this mix has brought that out. So it's the detail and the surprises and all that sort of stuff. Um, did it, what, what, uh, John, just describe what it's like to be in that room at L Acoustics. And um, you said that you had a lot of help from uh, from Julie, who works at L Acoustics. It's been very. Yeah. Um, um, Ju Julie is the the director of creative partnerships there. She's Julie Belor Bezo. And um, the Pitch Black Playback group um i've got like one of their masks here right that you got um once we came out of the lockdown um they really came into their own and they, they start i mean dolby atmos had happened um and i you know i was finding music mostly on things like apple music streaming you can hear um and i'd started to sort of fall in love with other other pieces of music beyond xdc and um Julie at L Acoustics was uh, was hosted hosted one by John uh, John Hopkins playback, um, which it, and basically what we did we went into it's basically their their sort of showroom 
uh, for their sort of uh, home systems. And, and like I said, they are that it is like a, a, you know the Death Star is a quantum level above. But um, L Acoustics also produced sort of uh, surround systems for live performance. But this was you know uh, uh, Julie introduces each session. And um, she talks, uh, you know, about, you know, if you've got a few hundred thousand or a yacht that you need to like, you know, to, to make perfect. But you, you basically sort of sit down. There are some sort of um, bean bags that kind of lean backwards. Um, you put on your mask um, and then, you know, we're in a room with maybe 20 or 30 others. Um, and, you, you know, the, the idea of pitch black playback is you just listen to the album, but you listen to it on a system in a, in a kind of format and, a, and a, a crystal quality that, you know, where even though when you're listening to it, you know, I'm never going to hear this again like this. Um, and it becomes really quite addictive. I've now been to five of these events. Um, I went to um, Porcupine Tree, um, Closure, continu Continuation. Um, uh, King Crimson they put on the court the Crimson King was which was lush as well oh and there's, there's another one coming up that's what I'm thinking of but it's 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 just like the sound stage um, I mean you can I've moved I've moved each time in different parts of the room to get a different aspect of of the sound but I mean sometimes you can hear music because it's object based Dolby Atmos or the system that used Dolby Atmos is object based so you can it's easier to hear things almost move like like you sometimes do at the cinema right you you know you're in a cinema and you might have a helicopter moving from behind you to you know to you know ahead of you and moving past it's that kind of aspect and i totally you know get how much he respects certainly within other people's music doing things too aggressively too dramatically but you can hear like sounds move across and you can pick it up and it grows and like it's just the the texture and the levels of detail that you can hear and you can lose yourself within. And I think you know the fact that it's you know you're black you're blacked out. You can't see you know you, you all of your focus, all of your senses are in the space. But it's it's just like it gives you. So, it's I'm trying to think of a, a a sense of size, but it's huge. You know, it's literally huge. And and songs that you think were you know uh, seem to gain in length. You know the the um, the outro of Wake Up goes on for like i don't know to such a long time but it's so pleasurable you don't want it to stop you can hear the you know the number of different wake-ups from um the choir lady whose name i wrote down earlier um but it's just like this is this is just beautiful this is like the equivalent of you know some high-end champagne or something like that you know you don't get you, you don't get to you know you get to savor them and it's a real opportunity and um i know that i'll never hear it in the same way but i get a sense of that you might actually, you know, and I, I have a lot of hope for this because I, I got a first taste of this kind of presentation when they did the Beatles surrounds, the Beatles Sgt. Pepper surround sound. They did a little tour of that and I got to go to one downtown here. It was a limited one day only thing in a theater that was all set up for Dolby Atmos. And it was darkened and everything in these big comfy chairs. And they played, you know, Giles Martin's new mix in, in Dolby Atmos. And it was pretty amazing. It was really wonderful. Uh, but it was, that was also one of these massive, you know, 21 or 30 speakers kind of systems and everything. Um, I, I, I'm so thrilled to hear your enthusiasm. I've had that level of enthusiasm probably for the last 20, 25 years or so. And I'm not saying what I'm about to say just to tout my own horn, but just for those of you who don't know, 
I spent about eight years being the primary, ex the only external publicist for a company called DTS, which is a surround sound audio technology, and uh, helped them launch the DTS HD Master Audio technology. I was their publicist, and I, I wear two hats. So I do, I do PR work, but I'm also a music reviewer. So it's uh, I keep church and state separately, so I can review I can review music, and they 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 kind of balance each other out. It works out nicely, and we used to have these incredible incredible setups at the electronic shows at the particularly the consumer electronic show um and aes and things like that or whatever actually not so much but ces for sure um where they would put up these you know you know, hundred thousand dollar systems. We would have these demo rooms for these showing showcasing surround sound. And when you hear the music and some of the releases that they were putting out and some of the in that kind of an environment, you realize just how good it can sound. Um, so that's what that's one of the things that really got me excited about about it. And and made me a big deep uh, fan of surround music. I've got a pretty deep collection of surround titles, and I've actually reviewed a lot of them on Audiophile Review. I don't get to do that on Analog Planet for the obvious reasons, but on Audiophile Review, I've re reviewed all the XTC titles, and, as, and anything I come across that I like is up there. Going back to your point, though, what's exciting about Dolby Atmos is that this might be the time where anybody can get it you know it's if this if the installation is more simplified and people can get these systems set up uh and then they can enjoy it or even enjoy it on their headphones then maybe people will get excited like you're getting excited about it we'll see more artists recording in surround sound and whatnot i know we had we've had waves of that with you know flaming lips and a whole bunch of other artists putting out surround mixes uh which are fabulous um so uh, I'm actually really excited about this new movement and to see where things happen, whether it's, it might not end up with, we might end up streaming some of these surround mixes at some point, uh, depending on how they'd like to distribute them. But it's still a, an exciting moment we're on, we're on the cusp of right now. So I think from brand recognition, it's interesting that Apple Music, um, they're using, they're doing everything in Atmos um, I'm sure Smotrov could argue how close to Atmos it actually is, but at least it's getting brand awareness where folk actually see these popping up all the time. So, you know, it's, apart from anything else, it's keeping it in people's visibility and it makes Absolutely. that alone as a step towards accessibility. The streams, the Apple Music Dolby Atmos streams are good and they, 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 um, but the quality of a Blu-ray, it, it's um, the shades like Prosecco and Champagne. It's so much yeah. sharper, and you've got so much control, and yeah. it, it's you know it's the preferable. But if you're checking out albums and you're checking out artists, I mean there there are a good number of, I've fallen in love with because of the the Apple Music, the ability on Apple Music. John um, John Hopkins is one, St Vincent's another, um, and back in the day, Mark, um, I mean I, uh, DTS was the thing for me. Um, uh, I, I, and I'm a huge Flaming Lips fan, so yeah, I, I bought Yoshimi, I bought the Soft Bulletin, all those mixes, and you know the. Um, but Atmos to hear those things in Atmos, my goodness, the Soft Bulletin in Dolby Atmos, oh my god. I'm just wondering if they'll give me fight test insert. Just so you guys, so you just so you know, the the mix on fight test. They, I think they did that with Elliot Shiner, and they had this crazy idea um that they said okay can we flip the entire drum kit around the room during fight test and um i think it was fight test right it's like the it, one was, yeah, it was and uh they say he said sure and it's one of the most disorienting wonderful <laughs> 
insane surround mixes you're ever going to hear because mm. in time with the songs, literally the whole drum kit is moving around you. <laughs> okay. But, but I mean, it's so interesting. Elliot Shiner, I think, was the, who taught Stephen Wilson because of the work they did together on his, in Absentia. But I would, th- I would, I'd come back at you and say Dukes of the Stratosphere, um, 25 o'clock um, by Stephen Wilson is just, I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a, a psychedelic fan's dream. I mean, it's just the, the, and and that's what drew me in, in the lockdown madness. I had to hear it. I had to hear that uh, the Duke's the Duke's mix because it was just I I, I wanted that first listen hit. I, I like I had a, you know back when I was I don't know seventeen eighteen. I wanted to I wanted to hear Big Ben like I did at that time and and be better still. You know. I think it's interesting. You mentioned them earlier, John. Super Deluxe Edition. I think we should call them out because, um, from a point of view of surround sound, they're doing fantastic stuff. I mean, I mean, their, their mantra is that people like to have physical things, and you highlighted, John, just then the difference between streaming and having it on a Blu-ray disc. And people don't realise that you know, if you stream a high-definition film, that's significantly less quality than buying it on Blu-ray, simply because of the bit rate and the amount of room you've got to play with on a Blu-ray, as opposed to streaming. But also, it's interesting that if I go back to Lexicon of Love, um, there was actually a Blu-ray released in the deluxe Lexicon of Love box, but that mainly had the videos and a film they made at the time, Manhunt. Whereas Super Deluxe Edition said, well, that's not really what we're into. Could we instead have some more mixes, please? And so there's a purely audio disc, but they actually are saying to... It's, we're their demographic. They say, look, here's what we've done this year. And they've got some fantastic people. I mean, the one they're about to do is Prince, you know, Diamond and Pearls, I think it is. So, you know, they're getting some fantastic stuff. I got the Eno one, the recent Eno one from them, which was real nice. Really yeah, enjoyed I that. I, I love that one too. I really love that, uh, the Brian Eno one and the Tears for Fears, both um, both the Tears yes. for Fears albums. But what I love about Super Deluxe Edition, and I think the guy's Paul Sinclair, um, he makes the the standalone Blu-rays, like they're affordable. You know, like if you have to buy the big box with all the vinyl and all the CDs, I mean, it's into hundreds of pounds. And, you know, I will definitely get looked at if they that comes through the postman, you know, that gets dropped on the doorstep. There's going to be words had in my ear. But like a Blu-ray at 20, 20, 30 quid. And I will cherish that forever. You know, that's, you know, that's enough. That's, that's what I want. The other thing he did is he, he does pre-orders so he knows how many to make. And in the case of the latest tiers for his album, was it The, t- the Tipping Point? Um, that, that sold out really quickly and it was going for ridiculous amounts on eBay. So he did a version two. He printed up another bunch. So, you know, it's very much interesting keeping it. If, it's catering for people like us who just want to hear the stuff and don't want, don't want to pay a fortune for it. And so, you know, it's, it's a sort of patron saint to geeks like us for surround sound stuff. I'm interested to know from the marks whether... Um, that process of of giving feedback to Stephen Wilson, uh, could you actually hear the difference that you know that your suggestions had made? I heard certain things. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't cite specific ones because there were just so many. Uh, there were so many little details everywhere, but in general, there was just this sense of refinement and you know vocals that might have been you know, prominent, you know, they were, you know, but now they're, you know, every, everything's just in, in the right place. So it's not like, I, th- I think what we were just to, trying to do is it's, we we're just helping to, it's sort of like a ship and you have somebody saying, hey, is there anything over there on that side? Can we go to the right? You know, somebody over there, is there anything over on the starboard side? We were sort of doing that for him, you know, because it, it's all his mix, you know, but I think just kind of giving him some, a little bit of support saying, okay, from our systems, which are you know, modest systems compared to what he has, 
this is what was popping out at us. And uh, it all ended up sounding lovely, um, as John Jacques has heard, <laughs> in, the, in, a big, in a big place, space. <laughs> I mean, the first versions you sent over would have been fine. You know, I think I said that in my reply. I said, look, if, if, I bought, if those were the versions that were on the final Blu-ray, I'd be perfectly happy. However, a lot of stuff we were saying were things like moving things slightly up. And I'm just looking at the email I sent back now, and it is just minor things like, oh, yeah, the vocals are a, a slightly higher the, the synths a bit more whatever but at the end and i think this is a key thing um i said i'd be totally happy with the mixes as they are and if you had 20 folks sending you feedback you'd probably get 20 different opinions yes so you know um it is the nature of the beast that ultimately he has to go with what he feels is best so i didn't feel we were really leading the donkey by the nose by any means you know we were just kind of giving him a bit of a sanity check um, exactly it was, it was very grateful to do and in fact um when it was announced um I made a joke on Facebook, which is always a mistake, and I said said something like, "I hope um, he got some decent QA folk to help him review it." <laughs> and someone replied, "said But this is Stephen Wilson. He's done loads of these mixes. He doesn't need any help from anybody, and he doesn't. But it's, <laughs> but it's good of him that he's that he's asking. And you know, obviously for him it was handy that he he knew a couple of folk who a knew about surround sound, and b were XTC dweebs, so could actually you know tick off two boxes in one go. So I'm sure that helped him. But ultimately, you know, I, th I think we were just adding a bit of icing onto a cake that was already ready for the wedding. Absolutely. Am I mixing my metaphors there too much? But anyway. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I, I mean, the other thing was, um, it was a week before Christmas, so we were all excited about that. With Stephen Wilson remembering that we existed, he was offering to send us mixers. And then on top of that, the thing that we almost forgot was, oh, I thought the master tapes had been burnt in that fire in America a couple of years ago. So the fact that found the master tapes at all would have been news enough. But in the scheme of things, it was actually uh, quite a bit way down. So I haven't heard anything since, but fingers crossed for the other missing ones. You know, one of the things that I think this underscores is one of the challenges that producers have uh, when they're trying to trying to make make this recording. They just they want they're in one kind of environment and they're trying to make a mix that's going to sound good across lots of different platforms. It's got to sound good on your little ear pods. It's got to sound good in your car stereo. It's got to sound good in you know here, there, and everywhere. So, and if you're in a super optimized place, you know it's sometimes it's it, you know you get a little bit isolated uh many studios will have in, in 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 this in the pure stereo days they would have a little pair pair of cheapo speakers set up on the on the, on the mixing board say okay we've got it sounding really good let's hear how it sounds through the crummy speakers you know the three inch speakers that sound like what you might have in your car or whatever and if it can if they can get it to sound good on that <laughs> then they were good to go and then in the mono days you know if they could get it to sound good on one speaker it was good to go. So, you know, having access to people like us who have, you know, modest systems. I mean, again, uh, we're not doing the $100,000, you know, $200,000 systems here. You know, it gives him, I, I, would, I would hope uh, that it gave him a little bit of additional confidence that he was in the right direction, you know, with where he was going with these things. So, and obviously, it, you know, it's, it sounds great. <laughs> so it's a, that's exciting. So. Should we talk about some of the songs? I'll come to the three of you in a second, but let's hear from Steve Cox, who is one of the lucky fans who was at the Pitch Black premiere in April 2023 at L Acoustics in London. What do you call that noise? Listening to a spatial audio mix of an XTC album uh, in a darkened room with about 30-odd other people, all of us wearing eye masks, speakers to the left of us, to the right of us, 
in front, behind, above, below. Uh, it really, really was a truly immersive and quite uh, intense thing. As, as to the album itself, hearing it again start to end in that kind of intense listening environment really was quite something. There have always been a few tracks that I've loved on that album. I loved even more listening again. Things like Wake Up, um, All You Pretty Girls, This World Over. They were always probably the sort of top three tracks for me on the album. Um, but, the, but the ones that really surprised me are, the, are those that maybe I, uh, I wouldn't say disliked, but that didn't resonate quite as much with me at the time for, for whatever reason. I'm not 100% sure why, but, um, you know, the tracks like um, Shaky Donkey Up and Seagulls Screaming, and particularly, I have to say, Rain of Blows, which was just overwhelming to listen to, which is quite something. And I think what Stephen Wilson's been able to do with this this album is really un unpack so many things and give room for them to to breathe. I mean, it's always an album that I think of as, as fairly sort of dense. I know that's, that's an argument that some people may agree or disagree with. Um, but it's something I've always loved about XTC, really, is there's always really been a lot going on, a lot to unpack when you're listening, when you've really got to know the songs well and you're into, you know, your fifth or sixth listen and beyond. You get so much more out of their, their music, I think, through figuring out what all these pieces of the jigsaw are, really, what they've put together. And I, I think possibly with this album, there's, there's as much there as there is on any album, really. It's obviously been so much said uh, in, in the past, really, about the album with the Lynn drums. But one thing that struck me on this listen back was just how great the Pete Phipps drumming is and how much you know real drums, real percussion there there is. You know, there might be a lot of that metallic industrial soundscape going on uh, buttressed by Lindrums or whatever else is going on there, but there, there's there's a real person playing drums there on a lot of those tracks, and that's quite evident and quite powerful. As much as I enjoyed listening to the album in that environment, this remix, start to end, uh, and what an intense and brilliant experience that was. I think at the time, what what really um, surprised me and and open my eyes, open my ears, uh, were the extras, the, the B-sides. Wash Away, uh, incredible. Should have been a single, should have been a lead single. Incredible song. Blue Overall, I really could not believe how magnificent that sounds in this remix. Yeah, a track that um, I was intrigued by at the time, but, you know, isn't one I've thought about a lot over the years, I must admit, and haven't gone back to and revisited. Um, but this this remix has really brought it to life for me. And also, maybe surprisingly, but Red Brick Dream, where you think, well, there's not masses going on there, is there? But this kind of overwhelming wash of the strangely tuned acoustic guitars. Yeah, uh, and a track that kind of means quite a lot to me, really, with its Swindon references um, as a born and bred Swindonian. Um, yeah, that's, that's always been uh, an intriguing and interesting and meaningful song for me and yeah that that works so well in 
in this kind of surround sound uh, mix as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe this is the one that tips me into the uh, the land of audiophiles. Maybe this is the one that makes me think about upgrading that system at home and starting to think about, uh, yeah, getting some of these reissues. Uh, I, I, I certainly was absolutely uh, stunned by that playback. And, yeah, we're all in for a treat. What do you call that noise? Thank you very much for that, Steve Cox. What does everyone else think um, are the standout tracks? Train running low on Solco is stunning. Yeah, totally. It's absolutely freaking stunning because that, that was that's one of my favorite songs on the album. It's also one of the densest and harshest on the album because it also comes at the end on the vinyl, if you remember. So everything's compressed down there. And Mark, you just uh, very kindly reshared your your own version of this song as well and your, your own cover of it. <laughs> that was a lockdown, <laughs> a lockdown experiment. That was my lockdown yeah. version, yes. <laughs> yes but, uh... <laughs> so, yeah, Train Running Lost Soul Cult is, I mean, the, the, the train sounds... And just the intensity of it all, but you're you're in there. You're you're just in the middle of that mix. You you're in the middle of the engine, Mark. You're in the uh, middle yes. of you've got the pistons going down either side of your head. Um, you've got the you know the town speeding by. You've got the clanking and the industrial noise. I mean, it, it's an absolute masterpiece. And it it was in the the eighteen point one point twelve situation at L Acoustics. It was, but it was phenomenal. Honestly, it was just. Um, and the engine and the 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 ah, oh, it was just phenomenal. I mean, it's a psychedelic classic. I mean, there are there are so many like quite out there bands who would have given their IT for that, and you couldn't, but you couldn't really pull that out of it on the on the on the vinyl back in the eighties. You didn't you didn't get that 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 sense of complexity. Um, I would also throw the the other two songs. I think like that's the sense of the denseness being spaced out would be "Shake You Donkey Up." I thought was was transformed in in a very very similar fashion, and "Seagull Screaming Kisser Kisser" probably the same as well. All, all of those just you know they flowered. The thing that I loved was the fact that he probably, I'm guessing, it probably made him very amused the fact that he could dedicate a channel to train noises. You know, you couldn't do that in stereo <laughs> when he was coming to do the full mix. Um, but it does make a difference where we actually have the train as an instrument of its own. So it's got its own channel to move in. Mm. I'll, I'll probably be uh, a bit controversial. And the track that really did it for me, the one that really made me reevaluate it was This World Over. Mm. And that's partly because it stands out for the reasons that John, you've just talked about being the opposite of that. You know, it wasn't clanking. It wasn't a big a drum heavy thing. It was almost like a pastoral period of calm. And listening to it, I kind of felt myself almost fading away like I was meditating. It was just a perfect blissful moment. It reminded me of these crummy adverts you see on TV where they're trying to sell some nature drink and someone takes a sip of it and then they fall back into the grass in a grassy field and all the birds are flying. It was just a sense of, you know, repose and um, blissfulness, which stands apart from the rest of the album because it is, as you know, very sort of rhythm heavy. Um, but that was the one that really made me revalidate it. David White, um, when we were playing it, he said he loved it, gave it 10 out of 10 the mix, but then commented, who on earth thought this was a single? You know. Um, so. <laughs> now, I also liked uh, Everyday Story of a Small Town. That was one that kind of transformed to my to my ear. It's like all of a sudden I was thinking, okay, that could have been a single. You know, that, that should have been a single. 
there's a nice chug to it that's really really nice and i like all the guitar stabs and things like that there's just lots of little details that were coming up on that that were really nice so i think of i think of all this surround mixes that we've done so far this is and feel free to argue the pants off me on this one this is probably the one that most deserves it that fits best because for the others it's been great to listen to the mixers and it sounds wonderful and i'm sure that it would have been released this way but of the ones that have been done so far i think this is the album that was begging to be done this way and had it been available at the time would have fitted better as that and i mentioned earlier a lot of the reviews talked about it being flat like a dynamics etc which you know it's almost like a code word going well what you're saying is there's a technology not invented yet that this is perfect for and certainly from the reports at the time you know andy uh, was very much trying to was overloaded with ideas on how to produce the tracks but you just didn't have the technology to fit it all in without them getting in the way of each other which obviously Stephen rose can now do on the surround stage it's kind of like brian wilson trying to do smile in the pre-digital age <laughs> You know, all the ideas he had would have been very easy digital, but in analog. Do you think it is just about the uh, the number of ideas? Because I, I was kind of thinking, well, it's not actually about the number of ideas. It's just like if you want to have a really fat bass sound and you also want to have a very big Lindrum sound uh, mixed with, you know, whatever other dr drum effects that they were uh, experimenting with um, and a sort of. It, it is quite a heavy sounding, you know, guitar sounds and, uh, and so on and, and, and intense rhythms and intense uh, lyrics and so on. Then actually, it's not so much. It's not like Garden of Earthly Delights where there's millions of things going on necessarily. There's, it, 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 it's rich, but it's 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 more about finding space for the individual sounds rather than the overall the frequencies. Yeah, the frequencies rather than the quantity of sounds. Yeah, it's interesting because you think had surround been available at the time, would they have made the same decisions? So, you know, they maybe chose things because it fitted into the stereo mix that perhaps would have fitted, they may have chosen something else for the surround mix because it would have sounded better in a, in a more open, more dynamic mix. It's just one of the many, it's like we said earlier, there's so many different permutations, you never know. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there is a bit of that in there that um, at, at the time, it wasn't just a pure number of ideas. It was how they fitted in with each other. And I think that's, you get some of that resentment from Colin and Dave um, coming out a bit, you know, that I think that, that kind of niggled them a bit. I picked up in the, the Wikipedia bit uh, of, of the review of the of the album that it wasn't just Andy. I think uh, David Lord also was inclined to that direction and they maybe set each other off. And I think that's probably what alienated Colin and Dave a little bit that, you know, actually there needed to be a sort of, you know, uh, executive view on, you know, what what would work for, for, for the listener. But the, the the amount of information in there and it is incredible. And just coming back to the recording that Andy did before the listening um, at L Acoustics, which I'm, I'm pretty sure Stephen Wilson asked him to provide, he, he basically said um, he loves the details and certainly this mix has brought them out. For the first time, he said, hearing this album, actually hearing things that I've forgotten were there, um, we put these elements to counterbalance that bit when something occurs and the, when the high drops out, it had to be exchanged. But it's it's the sense of he'd forgotten the, the amount of stuff that it was packed in. And by pulling it out, that's when it becomes this kind of revelation and, you know, you can reevaluate it. And, do you know, just um, thinking of some of the songs in there, you know, the whole Swindon concept album, I mean, really you can you can feel it so much more the flow of this you know of both the the the, the, the concept um you know not just in small town but with the extra tracks um red brick dream you know that that sense of the sort of 
the lyrical qualities, the lyrical pictures he's painting, the, the poetry, the Dylan Thomas, you know, under milk wood vibe that's, that, that Andy is just such a genius, you know, with these words. This may be actually his masterwork. You know, when you when you when you pull it apart and give it that space, it the whole album is so satisfying. I mean, it's you know, in like in Apple Music they have the essential albums, you know, under the artist. This one should go straight back straight up there. You know, it really should. It's it's in that in that context. One of the other songs that, again, you know, it's not just density, but also just giving space to certain sounds. Like I thought I bought myself a lyrebird was gorgeous. You know, there's this beautiful, rich kind of distorted amplifier tone coming through that he's playing with these those weird jazzy chords he's doing and everything. But you really get the sense of like an amplifier in the studio, you know, and you get that feel, that richness that was kind of, you know, crunched down on the vinyl, you know, I saw it on the CD versions. Uh, so it's now, I mean, it's just more, it's, it's just rounder. And, and again, with with the surround mix, you're getting more of that room feel, you know, that just that, just that basically that sense of what it's like to be in the room and hearing that kind of a sound as it's being made. So that, that is, that, those kinds of things are exciting too. I'll be interested to see the reviews that this gets in the, in the press and elsewhere, um, simply because of what you were saying, John, about you know, the, the revelation of what the album is, and not just for the surround version, but for the stereo one as well. Um, it would be great if they got the folk that wrote the, the reviews of the original release to, to, to hear it. Not to say you were wrong, you idiot sort of thing, but simply to say, you know, look, this is how it was meant to sound. And I think there will be a bit of a revaluation of it, you know, coming up, coming off the back of it. I don't think they'll just go, here's another XTC release. It sounds really good. Stephen Wilson's great. la I think there will be a big um, look again at the album itself um, to actually fit it in and say, well, now we're hearing it properly. Um this this fits more into this part of their genre. I'm looking forward to reading it. That's for sure. <laughs> the, the sense of the legacy that this album, um, it, viewing it from the context of 2023, and and Blur being very definitely a live, um, a, you know, a, a, a live item. Um, I mean, the everyday uh, of small town. I mean, it that there is so much packed in. That's kind of a precursor. And at the at the the playback. Um, someone very clear, you know, shouted out in the questions to Stephen. So Stephen did a, a panel at the end. You know, um, Blur made a, almost based a whole career on that song. You can see, you know, there's so much packed into that, and but you can hear it properly now, and it's 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 masterful. You know, it's it's a joyous song, but it's it really is a very powerful piece of of writing, and a you know really evoke um, the town, you know, and the and the sounds and the life and the you know, the, the whole story about Swindon is just brilliant. Well, I'm sure you saw, John, because you mentioned it earlier, and I've been on the same thing, uh, the Wikipedia uh, mention of that, where they talk about um, Alex Petridis um, referring to aborted tracks from modern life as rubbish, as a disappointment for, quote, excited to hear, for anyone excited to hear their abandoned sessions with XTC's Andy Partridge. They sound exactly as you would expect, like the XTC of an everyday story of small town. So, you know, it, it very much ties into that. And there is a kind of what-ifness about it. I just think, it's you know, XCC will get the recognition 
you know, and not just, you know, the, the high points, but the whole work, you know, will get the recognition um, as artists that they absolutely deserve. And, you know, I'm sure that's why Stephen Wilson is so passionate about doing the, you know, doing XTC. And, you know, the, uh, as far as I can tell from Julie uh, uh, at L Acoustics, I mean, it was quite a collaboration between, you know, all of the parties. But Stephen Wilson is, is you know, he's, he's, he's not just a, you know, in producer mode. He's, he's committed to this. He brought the panel there. You know, he's, he's so enthusiastic. And the, the other person that uh, Julie said that we should absolutely recognise and was mentioned uh, during the, the, the talkback was uh, the guy who's finding the master tapes. There is a name to this guy. He's called Jason and he works for UMG, I guess it's Universal Music Group. But he's the guy who tracked down these tapes and he deserves, you know, la you know, laudation, absolute laudation, because, you know, without him, I mean, you know, none of this would be possible. So it's, but it, I think that's the thing about the XTC community and how passionate everybody is about you know that just the quality the quality of this music it you know it deserves it you know deserves to be recognized and i think this album will i mean hopefully make that happen dave gregory was at that uh, playback as well wasn't he? oh yeah so what, what sort of reaction did he have because uh, 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 dave um hasn't always uh, I, I don't know what the right word is he's been slightly skeptical about the whole idea of 5.1s was was he sold on that on that occasion most definitely. And I mean, what a charming man. I mean, honestly, so quietly spoken. But I'm, I, I wrote down a bit at, at the time. He said, um, he previously said this was one of his least loved and certainly least played XDC albums. But hearing it in Dolby Atmos, it was worth reconsidering and reappraising its place in the catalogue, uh, which I totally concur. And then I think he put on a on Facebook. Uh, what did he say? Um, Sir Stephen certainly worked his magic on it and the result is quite moving. Was this really created 39 years ago? It sounds as fresh as, as tomorrow, is what he said in that context. So, I mean, thank you, Julie, for sending that, that, that through to me. That was, um, but yeah, he was, he was really genuine. And I think he couldn't remember, you know, I think they were producing albums at such frequency. It must have been really hard to be in the moment and you know, make the right decision at the right time. And but, yeah, he, he very much you know, puts it, I would imagine, in that reappraising, uh, you know, the Apple Music, putting it into the Essential Albums collection, hopefully. You know, John, your, your, your point is really interesting because, you know, the bands are in the moment, they're creating, they've got deadlines, the labels want things out, they, have, they, have, they have commitments, have quote unquote product out the door. And sometimes there were compromises made. Uh, the, recently, I got, I got a chance to review uh, some of the reissues that, you know, Robbie Robertson, may he rest in peace, thankfully did for us before he passed working with, um, uh, Bob Clear Mountain, and some of those remixes are absolutely revelatory, and the and the detail he gave in the in the box sets, uh, particularly for Stage Fright and Cahoots, uh, were stunning because there were compromises that were made at the time that were partially due to band problems, uh, and and just touring and everything that was going, and so the mixes came out not the way they should have and uh they, they're good but they're so much better now and uh so i mean this kind of a thing is exciting to me to see artists going back and saying okay what if we could have done these things and had had the luxury of more time <laughs> what would we have done i'd love to see elvis costello go back and you know rethink goodbye crew world and do it the way he wanted to do it you know and uh which is usually the one album that most people slam and he he's even slammed but you know there's things like that 
that I think could be really uh, exciting to hear, you know, re- redone and just updated and or just, you know, mixed properly the way they would have liked it done. So. Hugh Padgham was saying, look, he's worked on all these albums. Uh, he's had numerous number ones, etc. But the one band that people approach him at parties, they say, oh, you worked with XTC, which, you know, it, there is still that thing certainly within people that know their music um, is why it weren't XTC bigger. Um, I mentioned it, that I was doing this podcast today, somebody, and they were saying, oh, I've just put on Generals and Majors, and it's an amazing single. And I was going, yes, it is. <laughs> why haven't you been listening to, to it before? Um, it's just a band who's kind of fallen off people's awareness for some reason. But, you know, there are um, there's enough noise being made about them that it does carry on. And hopefully things like this just expand the message, if you like, to sound like a cult. I'm just going to play devil's advocate and I'd be interested to know what the three of you think of the opinion that you hear people express, which is that they really like those records that they bought in 1977. They like the way they sound. They like the lo-fi quality of them. And by giving things space, by giving things a sort of shiny, rounded production, what they feel is that a lot of the quality and the warmth and the roughness, I suppose, that they that they liked in the original can actually be removed in that process. And thinking along similar lines, this is what David White said when he heard the new mix. So let's listen to this, and then I'll come back to you to see what you think. What do you call that noise? It was quite something hearing the mixes presented very differently to how you remember hearing them. They had spatial dimensions that weren't there on the stereo mixes, and you certainly felt you were kind of inside the mix listening to it, with the action taking place to each side and behind and in front of you. Um, It is a thought, though, and I might be wrong, but I imagine most of the people listening to mixes like this will have already heard the songs before and maybe know them well. Uh, So the new mix, for instance, in my case, was interesting for comparison. I remember listening out for key details that uh, I knew would be coming up or anticipating where or how they would sit in the mix. Uh, An example being uh, in Wake Up's second verse, um, the lift, that slide, um, was it going to be at the front or at the back or the left or the right or moving from one side to the other, whatever? Oh, was it going to be louder or softer than I remember? And uh, with more or less reverb? Um, how about the all enveloping swimming reverb in the Red Brick Dream? How is that going to sound? So it's, it's very enjoyable making these comparisons and it's a great reminder of how wonderful the songs all are but uh, maybe the best listener to this might be somebody who doesn't know the songs of old um so they're going to have their socks blown off um hearing all this wonder for the first time uh whereas for me it was it was a good beard stroke i think um it's difficult to get away from the fact that the way songs make their big initial impression on us Uh, can be through pretty low-grade equipment. Um, The boys and girls of my generation might have been amazed by, I don't know, my generation by The Who or, say, Virginia Plain by hearing them on a mono speaker of a telly, maybe, or a transistor radio. Nowadays, it might be through a kitchen smart speaker or Bluetooth headphones or tinny phone speakers even. But uh, you get that unmistakable first-time wow um, even that way because you're hearing the song with little care for what's under the bonnet. Uh, So don't get me wrong, it's really 
fascinating to hear new mixes, particularly with new spatial dimensions to them as here. It's all good, but nothing can quite replace the thrill of hearing a song for the first time, all fresh and new and ingenious, like for my mum and dad's generation, hearing, say, Jerry Lee Lewis on a Dansett record player, or even if it's on your minis in-car cassette speakers, um, which is how it was when I was first thrilled by uh, the wonderful Big Express back in 1984. What do you call that noise? Thank you, David White. Does anybody have any uh, sympathy with that? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I hate vinyl, but I always have done ever since I was, um, since vinyl was the only option to buy. Um, but people are used to that and people just like it. You know, not everybody wants to hear 18 tracks worth of stuff they don't want it to hear. They just want to hear it in the most convenient way. It's horses for courses, you know. And I think Stephen Wilson is, as we mentioned earlier, taking the best way out of it, which is saying, I'm not going to do something, revel well, he does do stuff revelationally, but he's going to stick with, the he's going to reproduce the basic stereo mix, he's just going to make it a bit better. Um, there is a danger that people can drift off and do reimaginings of the, even if it's the artists doing it themselves, fine, do that, but do it like Taylor Swift does. Don't don't say, you know, here's a re-release of my album, and by the way, I've mixed it all to high heavens and added stuff that wasn't in the original. You know, it's, it's call it out that's a different mix, but at the same time, give people what they want, which is the original album. They don't want a different one. Um, so it's just got to be careful in there um, not to um, reimagine things. You know, people, do, by all means, do new stuff with the, with the old recordings, but still keep the old ones available. Adding on that, I always remind people because I get this comment to me, thrown to me all the time saying, oh, they shouldn't mess with it. And um, nobody's taking away your, your original records. Nobody's coming into your house, stealing your records or your CDs or your, your, your downloads or whatever. You can still listen to those and they're still good and they're still viable. I still have some of my, old, my original vinyl here. As yeah, but uh, on the other hand, you know, that, that, that's that's us. We're record collectors. If if somebody just goes to a shop and, or goes to On Top of Music and downloads the record that they loved when they were 15 and it comes back and it's been totally remixed and reimagined, I think that's wrong. Right. Well, there should there should be identification if it's if it's a remix or a rethink or something like that, a, re yeah. a major revision. But they've done that in, in, with a lot of artists. They've done made it really clear when there are different versions of it. But in general, it's an exciting time for people to be able to say, okay, let's go back and do the things we would have liked to have done. I, I love Steve, Stephen Wilson's mix of one of, uh, I'm a big fan of Yes, and Stephen's done all the Yes surround mixes. And um, one of my all-time favorite records, you know, surprises people, is Tales from Topographic Oceans, which is the often most maligned record out there. But some people call it the Jump the Shark moment, but I think it's an absolutely brilliant, stunning record. And Stephen's mix is fantastic. And he restored an intro that was supposed to be on the original album, but it was cut because of time considerations, you know? And it was just, you know, a minute or two of additional ocean sounds, whatever, but it adds this other, you know, it sets the stage for, you know, what would have happened, you know, what it could have been. So I'm okay with them going back and doing things like that if that's what the band wanted to do and originally, just like Robbie Robertson went back and redid the things the way he would have, you know, he thinks that they should have done back in the day, but because of whatever, they couldn't do it at that time. So. XTC was my gateway to Stephen Wilson. I didn't really know Stephen Wilson. And sort of during that lockdown period, once I'd exhausted the XTC back catalogue, I thought, well, who is this guy? And I worked back way through his solo 
career and in, deeply into Porcupine Tree. And I felt found myself falling in love with with a lot of what he's doing. Um, I think a lot of Stephen Wilson, Wilson fans, when the Future Bites came out, for me that was the the second because a Gentle Giant he did a Gentle Giant Dolby Atmos mix, but he's the the Future Bites was his first own his own first Dolby Atmos piece. And there, obviously, he has the limit to do what he wants, you know, whatever he wants. You know, he can, you know, he is the artist. He is the artist. If he wants to be aggressive and put on effects. And you know what he did? And you know what? I love that Dolby Atmos mix pretty much more than anything. It's the one I return to most often because I just think it's glorious. And when I listen to it in 5.1, because it folds back to 5.1, it doesn't have the same impact. It doesn't have the same, like, airiness and breathiness to it. And so... On the question about sort of um, going back, I mean, I, I, as much as I enjoy going back, I like to go forward, and I'm really looking forward to Stephen's new album, the, Harm- uh, the Harmony Codex. I can't, I mean, I'm hearing so many fantastic things about it. I can't wait to hear it. Um, but I also, you know, why do I go back? Um, I find Dolby Atmos gives me new ways, and, and 5.1 before, new ways to love things that I've, you know, new ways to hear and new ways to embrace and you know just the details that you can find in things and and there's a there's something in in atmos more than anything else that you can listen to it like so many different times and hear new elements or new combinations or new kind of contrasts so i mean i'm totally sold on it i think it's a a fantastic you know and i'm like the rest of you i mean i'm a you know sucker for vinyl i was a sucker for cds i was a sucker for cassettes you know they're all there they're knocking around somewhere but i would take this Dolby Atmos. I mean, I'm, I'm almost at the stage now where I don't very often play vinyl, which is a little bit weird because I I was the you know the, the the composite vinyl person. You know, I was the muscles from flipping through the stack thing. You know that that thing you get in your fingers. So, but um, no, I think it's it's new ways to love it, Mark. And I don't actually think that Stephen, if it's a producer that you trust, really messes with people's memories at all. I think he's very. I think bands trust him. I think they respect you know the respect and he, the fact that he he spoke to. Marks Reed and Smotroff to check and to do this exercise and the agile, you know, the agile sprint that you described it as Mark Reed. I mean, it, it just shows the, how dedicated he is to producing something that will stand the test of time and the, and the legacy of, of the music and to present it to you a new audience and to have it continue into 2084. Well, of course, XTC will be head and shoulders above the Beatles. Who knows? You know, <laughs> you picked a good point there, John, which is that, um, you know, we, we have fallen into a trap here where we're a bunch of um, youthful middle-aged men who were talking about how great music was in the past. And I've just been reading that, I think it was Simon Reynolds who wrote a book about retromania or whatever, where he basically says it's an addiction, it's an opium, you know, we need to get out of that. And I think the one thing that I'm most interested in is to see how in the future artists compose music for surround sound. So we're not just taking, I mean, the bands like X, um, say Pink Floyd, who um, did a bit of that, you know, they, they did do a bit of composing first round sound. But with the technology there is now, focusing not so much on how the record sounds so much better that we know in this new format, but people actually composing for that format and seeing what they do with it. That's where the exciting stuff's going to come from. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, by, by the way, John, I'll, I'll hurt your wallet a little bit in case let you know that if you if you as you go deeper down this surround sound rabbit hole, you're going to find that there's a lot of old quad mixes that are out there. And there's a company in England called Dutton, Dutton Velcalion that is doing straight transfers of uh, legitimate official releases uh, of 
old quad mixes from the 70s, which some of them are really fascinating. I've, I've gotten my hands on a handful of them. So you should look into those. You'll have some fun with them. <laughs> but uh, the um, tubular, be- tubular Bells has got the quad mix. I've got, I got the Blu-ray of that and stuff. But I mean, also, Mark, I mean, the person, the, the, the online people beckoning me down that rabbit hole were that quadraphonic quad group. And the Life in Surround podcast, those are the guys who, you know, that's that's where I, you know, lost sight of um, of the sky, really. Yes. yes. <laughs> John, I would I'd really like to know what the atmosphere was like in the in the pitch black premiere at the oh, end when it, was, when it, it finished. It, what, what was that like? Was, um, oh, I think everyone was bursting. You know, there's there's a, a good few uh, folks from um this community the xtc limelight community that were there a couple i've met subsequently liam liam duggan and uh, lewis but i think um tim kendrick he was there and the questions to to stephen they were they were popping you know and i think everyone was was, was conscious of actually what something what the special thing that stephen had done in in this particular mix and you know how it's you know it's really just you know, it's just brought this album out, you know, into, into, to, you can see it in its full glory. And, um, and I think there was a lot of love and a lot of respect to him. And, you know, he, he's such a smart guy. I mean, honestly, he was asking for questions, but he's one of those people that speaks and he's, when you realize you had a question, he's pretty much answered it. He's a, he's a fan and he's passionate about this stuff as we are. So he's like already kind of second guessed the questions, but no, I think there was a lot of love and a lot of joy and, um, and Pete Phipps was there, the, the drummer as well, and he was able to, to the, you know, the whole argument about the um, the Lynn drum thing that people talked about, the the perspective of the angular nature of it. I mean, Andy was talking about, you know, it was he was trying to create an industrial energy of a town, and that's what he was doing. But a lot of those, the the angular kind of the more jazz elements or you know electronic jazz elements. Um, were actually created by uh, Pete, Pete Phipps on drums. They weren't created by Lynn drums at all. You know, they were, it was part of, you know, and um, they were, t- he was talking about some really like, you know, bits of metal. And, you know, I don't know if it was like, um, you know, Einstein sets a Neubaut and with like people using drills and all that kind of, but there was a lot of, you know, mechanical noises that they were trying, that they were trying to create. Um, but no, it was a really joyous, um, a joyous atmosphere. And, I came, you know, came away like buzzing, absolutely buzzing, and I'm, I'm sure everyone in the room did. And there was a second showing. Um, oh, this is a weird thing. I don't know if you guys remember um, Nick Beggs from Kajagoogoo. He's like in Stephen's uh, Stephen's solo band. Turns out he paid as a, as a member of the of the audience to come and listen to this. You know, he he, he was there as well. You know, there's there are you know fans of absolute fans of the, I mean XTC have got so many fans but yeah I think it was a and you know I think everyone was coming away saying please Jason please find some more I mean for me English that one please you know that would be or oh, Apple Mummer. Venus Apple Mummer. Venus Mummer <laughs> we've all got one we want to hear yeah but that thank you for that John that's a love I think that's a lovely place to stop because it just reminds all you can hear from what you're saying how much enthusiasm not only you but all of the other fans in that room had so that's a lovely place to to finish so thank you very much uh, John Mark and Mark and um we'll very much look forward to the release of that album and uh, we'll be talking about more big express in future issues but thanks for that conversation that was great thank you what do you call that noise 
Thank you very much to both Marks, Reed and Smotroff, and to John Jacks, David White and Steve Cox. And of course to Stephen Wilson for getting the ball rolling in the first place. And thank you once again to everyone who has supported the podcast on Patreon, who you can join at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. Thanks in particular to the following Nights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, John Bicknell, Kevin Burt, Lorenzo Chachi, Cale Corbett, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Jeff Barris, Evan Fish, Leslie Gooch, Mike Grafe, Robert Graham, Camille Henry, Stephen Hope, Alan Hughes, Marek Kraus, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlor, Liz Lynch, Murray Meikle, Yusef Murrah, Jeff Nicholson, Amy Parkinson, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, Nigel Waller, and Martin Whitley. That's all for now. See you next time. 